This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 1, 1-2. This is found on page 1001 in the Bibles in the back of your pew. Hebrews 1, 1-2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Let's pray. It's fun to see a sea of red. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just kind of startling. There's already, there's already enough shades of red in this sanctuary as it is. We're going to have to deal with that. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that we just heard red, that you speak, that you speak. God, you didn't leave us without uh, a firm declaration of who you are and what you're like and what you long for. God, you have made yourself known. You have opened up the, the treasure house of your glory and your life and your heart so that we might know you. God, thank you for that. God, this morning as we open your word, as we long to be those who are conformed to your word, who are instructed by your word, who are shaped around the reality of your voice, God, would you open our ears? Would you open our hearts? Would you give us receptivity? God, I ask that we would have in this room, like uh, in, when Jesus declares in the parable the types of soil, God, would we have soil in the heart that would receive the implanting of your word in such a way that it would grow to bear much fruit in our lives? God, would you find no resistance in this room to your word? God, would it be like a fire that would burn away chaff that would animate that which is apathetic, that which is lethargic, that which is sluggish and sleepy? God, would it be like a hammer that would shatter the hardness of our own hearts? God, would your word be exalted in this place? God, would you show us who you are? God, we receive it. We just say yes by faith even right now. We ask that you would come and do these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so we're in uh, week two of a series looking at the person of Jesus. Uh, Last week, we began with looking at the question of why, why does Jesus matter, right? Why does it matter to get right the person of Christ Jesus? And this week, what I want to do is not yet quite jump into the reality of what the scriptures reveal to be true about the person of Jesus, but I thought we needed one more week of introductory material in some ways. 
The, the big question that I want to answer this morning for us or that I want us to come face to face with is if last week we, we sought to together hear the reality of why does Jesus matter or why does our answer to who is Jesus matter and carry eternal significance for us, this morning what I hope to do is answer the question, how do we know Jesus? How in the world do we know him, right? If, if this answer matters, if this person matters supremely over everything in our lives, the question should be from both you and from me in that moment, how do I know him? How do I know him? And what I wanna look at this morning is what the scripture invites us to see about itself, about how God reveals himself and the place that Jesus has in the scripture in order to lean toward how do we know him. So look with me here if you have the notes at letter A. At the heart of the Christian faith is the reality of knowing and following Jesus Christ. Right? So right at the center of everything that we're about as a people is a man named Jesus. And knowing him and following after him is at the front and center, at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. So because of this, it's essential for us to seek to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is according to what has been revealed about him in the scripture. And like I said last week, we sought to look at why the answer to the question, who is Jesus, has internal importance for us. Letter B, there are many voices today declaring to promote and follow the true or the real Jesus. I, I thought this was really interesting last Sunday after our service. I, I honestly left um, struggling in my soul with some doubt and discouragement. And I, I walked through the day, I had a conversation with a good friend, and then later that afternoon, I, I, I literally had this like dark thought of, why am I talking about this stuff? Like this isn't, this isn't our reality, right? Like the, the, the identity of Jesus isn't really up for grabs right now. And this friend of mine at 10 p.m. last Sunday night sends me a text of a screen grab from some social media thing that I'm not sure what it is. Um, but it's a famous person. And it says, this person declares that their brand of Christianity is the true Christianity. And I went, this matters. Yes. Utterly matters. When we have people everywhere declaring, this is what Jesus is about. This is who he is. I have the claim on the real Jesus or what he really meant or what he really wanted. Getting this right matters a ton for us. And we need to know who the real Jesus is. Many of these voices will seek to establish Jesus as like an example of compassion and acceptance or merely a voice of hope and wisdom. However, most of these visions of Christ today are offered in our culture and they fall far short of what has been revealed to be true of him in the word. One of the hard things that I think we have to come face to face with 
We're going to be confronted with this today as we walk through this text in Hebrews and look at what the scriptures invite us to believe about themselves and about the man Jesus Christ. One of the hard things that we have to come face to face with is, is that we want to build a God in our own image. Right? We want to build a version of Jesus or a version of God or a version of Christianity built on our own sentiment or our own preconceived ideas or our own preferences or what we want to be true. Right? And we have to submit ourselves up under what God has declared to be true about himself. Letter C, Jesus warned that there would be many false teachers many false prophets who would come and seek to separate his people, if possible, from the pure and undefiled truth of his person. Look at Matthew chapter 24 here. Jesus declares, and he's speaking of the time between his comings, the time from when he ascends to go be with the Father and sit at his right hand to the time when he returns to make all things new. He's talking about a general reality that will be true in those times. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. And when somebody stands up and says, hey, this is the Christ, this is the real one, if it does not line up with what God has revealed to be true in his word, the words of Jesus to you would be, do not believe it. Do not believe it based on sentiment, on desire, on what you want to be true. Why? Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders even, for a purpose to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Paul also was clear to warn his followers, the followers of Jesus, of the potential for deceptive schemes that came from Darkness that would filter into the church designed to separate them from pure and simple devotion to the real Jesus, the true Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11. I'm afraid, and he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who follow Jesus. He says, I'm afraid of something for you. I'm afraid that just like the serpent came and deceived Eve by cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Letter E, because of this, we must seek to remain steadfast and secure against the schemes of deception, must hold fast to the truth of Jesus as it's been revealed in his word and has been passed down from generation to generation by the church, specifically as it relates to the person of Jesus. Now, why does this matter? Now, it's my title for the day, right? But Jesus is at the center of everything. He's at the center of God's revelation to us. He's at the center of redemption. He's at the center of the scriptures. Jesus is right at the center of it all. And it matters to get his person right. Who is he? Because what he does 
and whether he is worth following or not are rooted in who he is. You cannot separate them from one another. The work of Jesus and his demand of obedience and submission as Lord of the universe hinge on who he is. You cannot separate them from one another. And so it really matters to see what the scriptures say about him. Look at 2 Corinthians 10. This is just before the passage that we read earlier. Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds are we talking about here? Paul, he goes, I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna answer it for you. Here's the strongholds. What are we destroying through uh, the declaration of what God has declared, the weapons of our warfare, they are designed to destroy arguments, ways of thinking, ways of seeing that are lofty opinions raised against the true knowledge of God. So he says, what's the battlefield for us in this age? The battlefield for us is arguments and opinions that will be raised up against the true knowledge of God. That's what we have to be on guard for and prepared against. Look at letter G. So if growing in the knowledge of Jesus is of such importance to us, we might then ask the question, how do we know Jesus? If growing in the knowledge of him, who he truly is, is essential to our relationship with him, and our obedience to him. How can we be certain that we can know who he truly is? Right, if deception truly abounds, if the schemes of Satan are designed to separate the church from her one true foundation, how do we secure ourselves in thought, in belief, in what is true about Jesus. So to situate the answer to this question requires that we understand the truth and the necessity of what the Bible calls revelation in order to know, follow, and wholly obey Jesus. Now, you might go, okay, we're about to get a doctrine class. You might a little bit, but here's why it matters. This is not just about doctrine, like the doctrine of revelation. This matters. I said this a little bit last week, and I think it really matters that we drill into this. You and I have been formed. I'll even say that we've been malformed by a way of seeing the world that is contrary to the way the scripture sees the world. And it matters to us because you and I have been taught from the smallest points in our life when we were very young that people stand at the center of what is true. Either through reason, meaning I can think my way into it by logically deducing what's right and what's not right. I can come to do this. This goes all the way back to a phrase that you likely heard at some point, either in high school or college. I think, therefore I am. 
right? This, the way that I know that I exist in the world is because I'm a thinking being. And I can reason and ration my way into the truth. So we put ourselves at the middle either through reason or what's become the norm in today's world through experience. I know what's true because my experience, what I feel to be true, what I perceive to be true, it puts you right smack dab at the middle of how do we know what's true. And the Bible confronts that thing head on. How do you know what is true? Hebrews 1.1, God spoke. End of story. That's what the Bible invites us to believe. And that is going to come up against how we have been trained and hardwired to make sense of the world from the smallest formational times of our lives. So we're going to look at that. So my goals this morning, let me tell you my two goals. Okay. Number one, I want us to walk away and submit to the scripture as God's word. I want us to submit to it. That is number one goal, that we would look at the word of God as it is revealed and go, everything that this says, I submit my life up under it. I come up under it. I don't come to shape it. I don't come to criticize it. I don't come to try to uh, conform it to my experience or my sense of making meaning in the world. I let it speak and I get changed. I get moved. That's goal number one. Second goal, I hope if we have some time to get to it, I'll get you out of here before the Super Bowl is that we, we would, from that place, set our hearts as a people to plumb the depths of God's word to know Jesus. That we would set our, our hearts, set our hearts to scour the depths of the word of God made known to us that we might know Jesus more. Those are my two goals. So look at the top of page two. We've got a lot more here than I'm actually going to get to, but hopefully it's helpful to you in the long run. So the beginning of this passage that we heard read this morning brings us face to face with an essential truth that we have to know when we seek to understand God's purposes in general and when we seek to understand the person of Jesus in a specific way. The author of Hebrews begins the whole of the letter by declaring a foundational and important truth. God has spoken. Look at this in verse one. Long ago, God spoke. Long ago, the eternal, uncreated God spoke something. He said something. He de deemed right in his perfect desire to make himself known, to declare something as true, to invite others to experience and know and be shaped by what he declared. God spoke. So to say that God spoke is shorthand in the scripture. 
the way that the scriptures make sense of reality, it's shorthand for saying that God has made himself known. For God to speak means that he has communicated something of himself to his people through the course of redemption. So God has declared something to be true about him, about his nature, about his purposes, and about what he desires from people. That's what it means when it says God spoke. That's shorthand. That little phrase is like a field that you could run and play in for a really long time. God has made himself known. The Bible teaches that there is no one who can know or see God at any time apart from his own sovereign choice to make himself known. This is what the Bible declares to be revelation. And the word revelation is just a fancy word that means to unveil something or make something known, right? So the Bible at the centerpiece of how is truth known is the concept of revelation. You cannot separate them. How do I know what is true? God speaks. How do I know what's real? The creator speaks. The one who set it all up in the first place. The one who's in charge of everything. He only gets to define reality. Nobody else. The only way to know truth is that God speaks. Revelation is the truth, letter D, that God has according to his own desire and his own will. That's really important. He's not forced to do this. This isn't something that he is being manipulated into or uh, pressed into. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter one, the doctrine of revelation is out of the good pleasure of the heart of God. This is his good pleasure, his desire, his choice. It's his desire and will. He chooses to reveal aspects of himself to people in order that we might know him, understand his character, and understand his purposes and will. So out of his, outside of his gracious action, no one would know him. No one would know him. Now, this also implies something really awesome. The fact that God speaks seems to imply, at least the the writer of Hebrews does, that there can be something to listen. It means that we can understand. Right? If God speaks and he reveals himself, the implication is that there's actually an ability in us as humans that we can receive his revelation. Now we have to receive it by his grace. We have to receive it by his own working in us. But it does mean that we have the capacity, the framework being made in his image to know and experience and understand. Okay, so throughout scripture, there are two broad categories of how God reveals himself. Number one, general revelation. God God reveals himself in general ways to all people, right? This speaks of how God reveals himself to all people. 
The Bible is clear that every single person has a basic understanding of God's existence and his power. This happens through created order. And every person understands at some level the nature of his moral law through our conscience. Now, this really matters. There is a concept that can seep its way into the church. That the basic problem with humans is that we just don't have enough information or clear enough information. The Bible tells us clearly that all people through creation and through their conscience know that God exists, know that he is in charge, know a concept of what is right and wrong, and they willfully suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Because we want our way more than we want his. We don't want to submit to the Lord of all who gets to decide what is and what is not, what is good and what is not, what is true and what is not. We want to decide that. We want to decide it through our reason. We want to decide it through our experience. We want to set ourselves up as the Lord of everything. And so we take the knowledge that has been granted to us that God is there and that he is in charge and we suppress it willingly. We push it down so that we can keep running after unrighteousness. That's what the Bible declares to be true. We have to accept that right? There's all sorts of implications that I don't have time and space to go into right now. The reality of general revelation is that it is sufficient enough for people to know that God exists and to understand some concept of basic morality and therefore hold them accountable before God, but is not sufficient enough to save them. So look at Psalm 119. The heavens declare the glory of God not go. Sorry about that. Go is an actual word, so I didn't pop up on my uh, autocorrect. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is just God's nature made manifest. So something in the heavens tells us that there is a holy being who exists. Something about creation tells us that. The scriptures invite us to see. The sky proclaims this is not an accident. This is not an accident. It's not a happenstance. It's not a chance. It's not a fluke. This was put there. Right? This is like walking up to a painting down at the Nelson Atkins. You don't walk up to it and go, wow, what a chance. You go, There's an artist. There is enough in created order for every single person to look up and go, there is an artist. There is a maker. There is one who has knit this together according to his handiwork. He exists. Look at Romans chapter one. Paul says it similarly. He says, what can be known about God is plain. And he's talking about everyone here. Not, he's not talking about Christians. He is talking about every human on the face of the earth. What can be known about God is plain. Say plain. 
plain. It's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, revealed it to them. Four, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, meaning he's got every, all the power and divine nature, meaning he's in charge. Everything declares that and everybody gets to see it. They have been clearly perceived. Say clearly perceived. Right? It's plain and it's clearly perceived. So you might go, Ron, there's all these people out there that claim that God doesn't exist and they know that they know that they know that they know. The Bible says they know and they willingly harden that part of themselves. They push that thing down and sear it so that it's not there anymore. So it doesn't tell them that he's there. Every person clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter three. The writer of Ecclesiastes says he's put this eternity-sized hole in the heart of every man. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the guy's running around going, I've tried it all. Everything I tried to fill that big old hole inside of me, I tried it and it came up worthless. It was like trying to catch smoke. I, I thought I laid hold of it and it would slip through my fingers. Why is it this way? Why is it not in pleasure or in knowledge or in power or in success? And he goes, it's because all of those things are finite and God put an eternal chasm in the heart of man. And we all know that. Romans chapter two, Paul goes on and he says, Gentiles that don't have God's laws, at times they do by nature what the law requires. They're like a law to themselves, even though they don't have one. And they show something. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or they excuse them. Meaning, they know something of God's moral standard. And every single person inside of them has this siren of what should and should not be done. They either excuse that away or that thing tears apart at them and accuses them. They all have it. So generally, God reveals himself in those ways. Number two, there are specific and salvific ways that God reveals himself. There's ways in redemption to bring people to communion with himself. The avenues for specific revelation ultimately center on Jesus Christ and include the scriptures. They include the covenants, the words of the prophets, those means by which God declares not only that he exists and that he's in charge, but he declares, how can you come into relationship with me? Who I am, what I'm like, what my heart is like, and how can you be in good standing with me and walk in the light with me? That is specific or salvific revelation. So the author of Hebrews goes on to declare not only that God does speak, but how he has spoken. He proclaims that God spoke in many times and many ways through the mouths of the prophets so that God's people could know him and understand his desires. Look at page three.
So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is outlining old covenant realities, how the prophets spoke God's words to God's people. He would stir them up to speak true and faithful words in order that his people would truly know him and might know his will. The result of this form of speaking is contained in the scriptures. The scriptures are the compilation of God's utterances to his people throughout redemptive history. If you want a one sentence definition of what the Bible is, the Bible is not just like a compilation of different literature. It's not a compilation of people trying to make sense of the world or make sense of uh, their experiences in the world. The Bible, if you are going to believe it in according with the terms that it tells you to believe, what it declares to be true about itself, it is a compilation of the utterances of God to people. That's what it is. It's important for us to believe certain realities about the scripture in order that we would receive them as God's word to us, spoken at many times in many ways. Look quickly at Second uh, Timothy 3. Paul declares that all scripture is breathed out by God, meaning it is God's words. Second Peter 2, or Second Peter 1, Peter declares no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this matters to us. We're building an edifice on which we can come to who is Jesus, right? This is, this is utterly important. We have to believe certain things about the Bible in order to get it right. Number one, we have to believe, and there's, there's more things we probably have to believe. These are three that are like right at the center, right? There's more things you could say that are true. These three, if we get these ones wrong, we miss it all. We will miss it all. Number one, the scriptures are inspired. What this means is that the words of the Bible are the words of God. Do you catch that? These are God's words. These are breathed out. That's what Paul means in 2 Timothy chapter 3. These are breathed out of God, inspired as people wrote them. He didn't overcome them or overtake them, but he moved through their faculties. So where you can see that the words of the scripture as written by these people, they are God's words. They are the word of God to us, breathed out. This is what scripture claims for itself. Now, here's, here's one thing that I'd like to invite you to believe. And we're going to be doing this a lot over the course of the next several weeks as we get to Jesus. C.S. Lewis had this famous thing about anybody that comes to Jesus in accordance with the truths that the scriptures uh, declare have one of three options. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Because if you're going to take what he says to be true, either he's fundamentally lying to you, he's crazy, right? Declaring that he is one with God and sees the things that God is doing, right? He's either a liar, he's crazy, or everything he says is true and he is the Lord of everything. I want to imply the same kind of principle to the scriptures. 
You can't just take these as a mechanism for knowing a little more wisdom in the world. These things tell you that they are God's word to you. If we accept them as anything else, just throw them away. If they are to you no greater than like um, some classic literature or some great piece of literature that's been passed down through the ages, all of it's false then because they declare that these are God's own words spoken to us. And that they should give shape to everything about our lives. So either we throw them aside or we receive them as God's word. They are inspired. The second thing that we see here is closely related to this. They are authoritative, right? Closely related to being inspired. If they are God's words, that means they have authority over our lives. If the scriptures are breathed out by God, and truly his word, then to disbelieve or disobey any word of the scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. They are tied together. If this is God's word, then to disbelieve or disobey is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's what believing in the authority of the scripture means for us. Lastly, the scriptures are without error. Now, simply stated, this means that what the Bible says, it always tells the truth and is always wholly true concerning what it says. What I mean by that is it still uses like idioms and things, right? So if I told you in the form of how we talk that my house is a couple miles away from this building, would I be lying to you if you found out that it was 1.1 miles away, right? People do that with the scriptures, right? Like there's all sorts of places where normal expressions of how people related and communicated to one another are pressed out and they're like, well, see, this is a problem. What the Bible is communicating, meaning what it means to tell you as truth is true. That's what this means. The Bible doesn't have errors in it as it relates to what it is trying to tell you. Everything that it tells you, it tells you in a holy, true manner. Okay, so we have to have these. So if the scripture teaches this about itself, then we are to receive it. If we are to receive its teachings, we must then submit to it as God's word to us. In order for us to rightly know Jesus as he truly is, we must be willing to submit our lives in faith to the authority of his own word to us. Again, this runs counter to our formation and our training. The last 250 years have put man at the center of how do we know things through my reasoning abilities or through my experience. But the Bible puts God, his objective truth, his revelation at the center of how we know things. We have to submit to that in faith. We must not seek to conform the word of God to our own preconceived ideas and desires. Rather, we must come as those who are truly submitted to what he's revealed to be true in order that we would rightly know him and more fully understand his will and live in communion with him.
Let's just look quickly at this last little bit here. The author of Hebrews is not simply giving us a portrait of what God has done throughout redemptive history in the old covenant. He is bringing us to a point where we can see the reality that God has spoken in a definitive and a unique way in his son, Jesus. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 2. God at various times and in various ways spoke to us, to the fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. At the center of God's revelation, at the center of God's redemptive purposes, at the center of the scriptures themselves is Jesus Christ. He's the glorious point of all of God's dealings with humanity from the beginning of creation into all eternity. Let me just give you three quick ways that Jesus is at the center and then we'll bring it to a close. Number one, Jesus is at the center of God's revelation. Meaning Jesus fully and wholly reveals what God is like. This is what the Bible declares to be true about Jesus, right? So Jesus is, Hebrews 1 will go on to say, the radiance or the expression of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So he is the exact nature of God. Everything that he does is an exact representation of God Almighty, the uncreated God, every single thing about him declares the full measure of who God is. That is Jesus. He is the full revelation of God. Colossians 1, Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so we'll get to this in weeks to come, but this means when you scour the word and you look at the gospels and you see Jesus feeding the 5,000 or you see him calling people, you see him walking up on the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount, this is God speaking to you. You want to know what God is like? Look at this man. That's what the Bible invites us to see, declares for us to submit our lives to. You want to know God? Jesus of Nazareth is the exact image of the invisible God. The fullness of God dwells in him. He is the radiance of God's glory. The one who declares him. To see Jesus, number two, is to see God. This is John at the beginning of his gospel. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Whoever seen me, Jesus declares on the night that he was betrayed, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is the center of God's revelation. The second, Jesus is at the center of God's redemption. Jesus is the only way to experience the salvation of God. What we see as the scripture defines for us, the problem with humanity is that we know God exists, we know what he desires at some level, and we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, we are deserving of his wrath, his judgment, separation from him, and we cannot be in relationship with him. God purposes, according to his good pleasure, a way by which we might be welcomed back into fellowship with him. 
And right at the center of all of that redemptive purpose is one man named Jesus of Nazareth. He is the only way to experience the salvation of God by receiving the gift of grace made available through his life, death, and resurrection by faith in it. Look at John chapter six. Jesus says, again, this is one of those, he's either lying to you, he's crazy, or you better submit your whole life to him. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Unless you come to me, Jesus says, and eat my broken body and drink my shed blood, you cannot have true life. Jesus stands and says to his disciples, I alone am the way, I alone am the truth, I alone am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the early church believed this with power and in their proclamation, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. No other way. It's not how good you are. It's not how many good things you do. It's not how many causes you run after. There is no other way by which men can be saved than the name given that we can be saved, Jesus Christ. The last thing is that Jesus is at the center of God's word. Jesus fulfills all the promises that God has made through the scripture. Look at Luke, Luke chapter four. Jesus says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? So beginning with Moses, that just means the five early first books of the Bible, that, that it's called Moses, the writings of Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is at the center of God's revelation. This is, this is God. This is what God is like. He's the full image of God. He's the center of God's redemptive purposes. There is no way to be saved outside of him. And he is at the center of all of this. Every single part declares who he is, what God has been doing to set up salvation through Christ Jesus and accomplish it through Christ Jesus. Peter declares that Jesus was the one that the prophets spoke of and longed to see. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you and through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things that angels long to look into. The glorious reality that we have in Christ Jesus is that the whole counsel of God's revelation, God's redemption, God's purposes fixates and focuses in one person, one person who we are to submit our lives to by faith, receiving from him in his grace. 
All right, I'm going to have a stand up. We're going to end there. I got a whole other thing, but it's a sermon worth in itself. You can go and read it on your own. The last thing there, the last point, in some ways is just a case study. Applying the reality of Christ and the revelation in Christ to all that's gone before and what happens in our lives as we come and submit to him in accordance with what he has, been, his, has revealed to be true in the word. So this morning, how I want us to respond, simple. Simple, I just want us to submit ourselves to the Lord. Say, I want to receive everything that you say is true. Everything that you say is true, no matter what it does to my preconceived ideas, no matter what it does to my preferences, no matter what it does to my experience, your word stands and I come up under it. Now, for some of us, that means that we have to repent. We have to repent for places that we have sought to make him in our own image where we have sought to conform the reality of God to what we desire and shape him and fashion him according to our preferences or our experiences or what we want to be true. And repentance just sounds like, God, that's, that's sinful. That was wrong. I repent. Would you lavish your grace upon me and submitting our lives to him yet again? So let's just, Take a moment to pray before the Lord and then we'll come and receive from the table together. We'll rejoice in song. And like we do every week, we've got people that would love to pray with you, pray for you. If God's stirring in your soul, if there's places where you're going, I want my life to be conformed again to the truth of his word. We have people that would love to stand with you and agree with you and ask the spirit of God to continue to move in your life. But so let's just, let's just take a moment to submit ourselves to the Lord. Just respond to him. God, we love you. God, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you speak. We thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves. I'm actually really thankful that you didn't leave me to my own reasoning abilities or my own experience. My heart is so easily troubled, easily tossed around, easily moved to and fro, easily thrown from one thing to the next. God, thank you that you have spoken. Holy Spirit, right now, would you come and just make our hearts soft to you? Just even in that, that vein, I ask that you would Remove resistances in our hearts to the truth of your word. God, would you come in and put your finger on places in our minds and in our hearts? God, we, we ask that you would give us the grace to partake of or to participate with the weapons of our warfare to tear down lofty arguments and opinions that exalt themselves against the knowledge of who you are. God, we don't want to be in that place. We want nothing less than what you have for us. So would you come and speak? Speak your word. Minister among us. Cause our hearts to be receptive and responsive. 
And we're just gonna stay in this posture and the way we're gonna respond like we do every week. We've got, we're gonna sing and we've got ministers that would love to pray with you. We're gonna come and receive from the table of the Lord together. If you look to Jesus and you look to him alone for your salvation, if your faith is in him and you, you, you declare with all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your trust that he is at the center of God's purposes, his redemption, his revelation, that there is no other name by which you find life in God and salvation. You're a Christian and I wanna invite you to come and take this meal. The way we take the meal is you tear a piece of the bread off, you dip it in the cup. The wine is in uh, the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. Servers, you're welcome to come forward now. We'll have servers at the front and the middle in the balconies and a gluten-free to my right over here. And if you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, you don't trust in him, you don't see him as the way, the truth, the life, you aren't ready to submit your life to him no matter what, we ask that you not come and take this meal. This meal points to a reality. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken in order to bear the, the, the chastisement that we might have peace with God. And the, the wine represents the blood of Jesus shed that we might have forgiveness before God, not of our own merit, not of our own doing, but because of him alone. If you don't believe in that, this, this meal doesn't afford you right standing before God. So we'd invite you to stay where you're at. We're really glad you're with us this morning, but we'd invite you to put your faith in Jesus. And if you're in the place where you're struggling and you're going, I can't make sense of it. I can't make sense of it. I can't put it together. I can't, I can't make this Jesus thing make sense to me. Here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. Plead with God to open your eyes. Ask him to convert you. Ask him to uh, make his truth alive to you. He alone can shine the light into your heart. He alone can make himself known. And so ask him this morning to do it. Would you have the, the courage and the humility to ask him? But for those of you who are receiving, you're welcome to come forward. Uh, when you're ready, we'll respond in these ways. Amen.